All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the third day of April 2018. Do like to remind you that I'm the editor of, um, of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and you can subscribe to that by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call our office in New York, 718 457 1426. 718 Four five seven one four two six. We do like to also remind you that we're affiliated with Chen Lin. Uh, what is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? You can subscribe to that letter by going to ChenPicks.com. ChenPicks.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. I also want to invite you to continue sending along your questions, criticisms, praises, whatever you have to say about this show. Send it to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions the number four Taylor at gmail. Com. And, of course, we do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Resources, Bontero Resources, Dynacor Gold Mines, Genesis Metals Corp., Klondike Gold, New Range Gold Corp., Northern Empire, and Novo Resources. <clears throat> I've titled today's show, China's Plan to End Dependency on American Trade. Alistair McLeod, Michael Oliver, and Brian Groves are return guests today. Superpowers prevail and expand until the hand of God says, no more. Financed by what can only be defined as a fraudulent monetary system after Nixon removed the intrinsic value from gold, from from the dollar, by taking gold away from it, the U.S. was able to create seemingly endless amounts of money out of thin air to fund military and clandestine activities to expand its presence around the goal, but also, of course, for politicians to give goodies away to those who vote for them. As the Soviet Union was in the process of its own statist, desi- statist self-destructive design, in order to ensure it went away peacefully, President Bush promised the Soviet Union that NATO would not encroach on Russia by taking former satellites of the Soviet Union into NATO. But alas, that promise has been broken with numerous former Soviet satellites taken into NATO now, becoming members of NATO. And now NATO entirely encircles Russia, even as neocons would have you believe that Russia is even more of a danger to us now than it was during the Cold War. For reasons that are entirely understandable, Russia doesn't like the U.S. threatening its sovereignty, nor does China appreciate the U.S. telling it that it doesn't have the right to control its own sea lanes in the South China Sea. Given these geopolitical realities, which so far, as we know, continue to include the U.S. military being second to none, 
It isn't surprising that both China and Russia and other countries aligned with them are fighting back by targeting the U.S. where it is most vulnerable, namely with its deteriorating economy and financial system that is built not on the rock of a sound gold-backed currency, but rather an increasingly vulnerable fiat-based monetary system that is based on debt. And if that debt can't be paid, the system becomes increasingly uh, insolvent and unstable. It was the financial crisis of 2008-2009 that hurt various countries around the world that caused China to start to implement ways to lessen its dependency on a dollar that is increasingly unstable and to create a monetary system of a more sound footing, perhaps based on gold. At least we know for sure that China has been encouraging its citizens to import gold. By all credible accounts, massive amounts of gold have been flowing into China from the Western world. At the same time, Russia has built up its gold reserves, as have other countries friendly to Russia and China. In addition, uh, China and its partners, the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and South Africa, have begun building a massive new trading and institutional infrastructure, including a system of global monetary transfer, a banking system, as well as railways, highways, and sea lanes for trade that are outside of the Anglo-American empire. Well, in the second hour of today, the second half of today's show, I should say, Alistair McLeod will join me from his home in England to discuss how China is using its rising economic power to gain independence from the abuses of the U.S. dollar hegemony and what that may mean not only for our financial markets but for our economy and the privileged way of life that most of us post-World War II babies have become accustomed to. While Alistair will provide us with a possible view of the impact of declining dollar in the Western world, Michael Oliver will be with me in just a moment to step aside from the theoretical to relate what is actually transpiring now with some major tectonic market changes, including what looks to be a new paradigm in the markets that may be taking us back to the stagflation days of the 1970s, or possibly, God forbid, something worse. Now, if gold is the antidote for China in a world in which the financial system is in the process of self-destruction. I firmly believe gold will likely also be the antidote for folks living in the Western world who are able to pull their heads out of the sands of massive propaganda aimed at keeping all of us conned into believing in government and central bank miracles. Most people will be sucked into the mainstream propaganda and will suffer greatly as a result, but I'm guessing that many, if not most, of the listeners of this show will realize the dangers of continuing to buy without question everything you hear in the mainstream media. How many brokers do you know that are suggesting that you have at least a small amount of your portfolio on gold and silver and the companies that produce those monetary metals? Well, it's amazing but most people don't realize just how well gold has done relative to stocks since the beginning of this new century. I bet you didn't know that since January 1, 2000, gold has risen by 462%, while the S&P total return index has risen by 263%. In other words, if you had purchased the S&P 500 back then, you would have, uh, well, if you'd purchased gold, you'd have been 200% better off. Uh, with that investment than if you purchase the S&P, and that includes dividends that went into the S&P owners. But Wall Street has its own products to sell, and it can't make money selling you gold. So uh, gold's performance is a dirty little secret. It's kept from you. One person who would not be amazed by gold's outperformance relative to stocks would be Michael Oliver, and I'm pleased to say hello to Michael. Thanks for joining me again today, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. 
Always good to have you back with me because of your accuracy. Uh, the work you do has been so dependable, so helpful to me. You put out something this morning just showing a shorter-term comparison of gold to the S&P. This is a year 2000, well, this is since 2015. We've seen the the equity markets rise dramatically, but gold has done almost as well, right? Yep, it's... Uh S&P at its peak, if we start from the close of 2015. Now, remember, in late 2015, the S&P was under pressure like gold. It was well mm-hmm. off its highs. Uh, and, uh, and basically, you know, late 2015, early 2016, a lot of commodities and stocks turned up simultaneously. Oil made a low about the th- same time as the S&P did, early 16. Gold made its low in the, the tail end, the lowest monthly close is the December close of 2015. So they were, you know, somewhat in sync. But the S&P went up 38% to its January close of this year, measured from the 2015 close. Whereas gold has been hovering for the last few months up about 25 or so percent from its 2015 low. Now, with the S&P wobble that we've just had, or I call it a breakage, um, the difference is about a half percent <laughs> from the 2015 close to the present. Now, remember, this is a period when gold has not performed well versus the S&P instead of mm-hmm. the long-term picture that you, you discussed going back 20 yeah. years. Yeah. Uh, so gold, um, I, I showed a column, simple column chart of gold and S&P right now, measured since 2015, and you can barely tell the difference. Yet nobody in the financial press is talking about gold. No. Uh, and, and, and the sudden change now where they're the neck and neck instead of one column being shorter than the other. Uh, uh, gold is neck and neck with the S&P. It's in part due to two things. One, the S&P dropping, and two, gold hanging in tough near its mm-hmm. uh, upper end of the, the multi-year range here. Um, I did a momentum study of the, uh, that performance since 2014, and it broke out last month. Mm-hmm. So monthly momentum says it's not only this firming of gold relative to the S&P or weakening of S&P versus gold. It's not just some near-term phenomenon. It's actually a breakout. Mm-hmm. Uh, therefore, it looks to me like uh, gold is now likely to continue to outperform and outpace the S&P. Now, maybe at some point the financial press will actually get hold of that story and mention it. But right. you know, for the last year or two, nobody's mentioned the fact that gold's done quite well uh, despite the smokescreen of stocks. Uh, and, of course, as, as investors get disenchanted with stocks, they've got to go somewhere. And yeah. uh, gold's been behaving well. So it's not like it's a, a feel-bad market. It's a feel-good market, and I think it will attract a lot of the money. It certainly feels better than Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, uh, speaking uh, – go ahead, Michael. No, go ahead. That's, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, speaking of stocks, I mean, they're looking wobbly right now. Uh, what are your your momentum indices I, saying I about? I mean, I, I think it's over. You're, now. you're broken. Yeah, the, yeah. I think the top's in place. Uh, we were waiting on the Nasdaq 100 and the PNQI, which is the ETF of uh, internet stocks, the the leaders, in other words, the Google's, Amazon's, etc. They both broke, and the break in February in the S and P and most developed market indices around the world was conclusive to us. But Nasdaq and the PNQI did not break key structures in the February mm-hmm. break. They did this week. Mm-hmm. And now I think the game's on. Um, also, if you plot uh, NASDAQ 100 performance relative to the S&P, it's in, it's in sharp decline. And it's not just in decline, it's in breakage. In other words, it's breaking momentum trend structures 
of the relationship, indicating there's more to come. So going forward, we expect the market to go down and NASDAQ 100 to be a leader on the downside, just like mm-hmm. it was on the upside. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only question in my mind is, in what manner is the decline unfold? Is it, is it, could we crash? It's possible. Uh, or are we going down in sharp layers? I'm more inclined mm-hmm. to think sharp layers. I see some support in NASDAQ 100 about 10% below here. Now, that's a pretty bad percent, considering you're already well off the high. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, if you get the NASDAQ 100 down, oh, 5,900 area, about 10% below current market, I'm watchful for a possible shelf of support, not a bottom, just a shelf of support that might cause a rally. Uh, but if we go trashing through that level dramatically, then, you know, we could be in crash mode. And I, I frankly don't know the answer to the nature of the decline. I am just a bear now, fully right. bearish. Well, it seems pretty clear that the uh, equity markets are not going to go down without a fight. I'm looking today at the the Dow is up 350 points as we speak. Mm-hmm. NASDAQ is up uh, 1.18%, up 81 and change. Uh, so mm-hmm. mm-hmm. S&P is up strong. So, you know, there's a lot of believers. We've had a long bull market, and it's pretty hard to get convinced people that uh, you can, oh, you just, you know, you don't want to be in stocks. you got to be there. Yeah, no, I, I quite agree, and we've warned our subscribers that you know that you can get these rallies that just curl your hair. And so, mm-hmm. if you are short these markets, uh, you better be short in a in a, a way that you could accommodate your portfolio, your your, your wherewithal. Um, mm-hmm. Heavily leveraged, if you can't afford it, don't do it. Right. Um, and and also, you don't have to do it all at once. You can do it piecemeal. Right. Um, and uh, it, it's it's a dangerous situation, but I do think it, the top has been made. And the, question, the only question now is in what manner do the legs of decline unfold? Yeah, Fast, and what I, uh, what, I, what I really appreciate about uh, Michael's, about your work, Michael, is, uh, is the momentum charts that you show so clearly. For example, I'm looking at the one you talked about earlier on gold, and quite clearly momentum is broken out, but you couldn't tell that by looking at the gold chart, at the price chart. So, you know, this is typical of what you do, and and same thing on the downside, of course, with stocks and so forth. The momentum, the structure is broken, and then, you know, it just works. It seems to work uh, amazingly well, which is why I am so thankful that you come on to talk to us every week. Uh, It's really great, and I should tell everybody, it's OliverMSA, OliverMSA.com. Go there, learn more about Michael's work, and if you are a serious investor, you may want to think seriously about uh, subscribing to Michael's letter. Thank you so much for being with us again, Michael. And Thank you, Hopefully Jay. you can be with us again next week. Well, folks, we do have to go to break now. Don't go away, though, because Brian Groves, who heads up Genesis Metals, will be with us. That's a company with a growing gold resource in Quebec. Uh, it's a company that I've invested in personally, and it's one of my top picks in my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stock. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Brian Groves. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project. Located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. Well financed with no debt, New Range is unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX symbol NRG. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corp. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Brian Groves. He's the CEO uh, and is also a director with Genesis Metals. Uh, Brian has over 30 years of experience in Australia and Canada mining and exploration, and he's worked with some pretty big companies like Amex Minerals, Noranda, and Placer Gold. Same companies in the past as a geologist and exploration geologist, and uh, I've known him for quite a few years actually with another junior mining company in the past, and uh, I've really uh, think very highly of him and his um, his ability to uh, to go find the metals where they are, and he certainly had a, a great track record. So really pleased to to have him with us today. I I own Genesis Metals, and uh, I always start out by looking at the people that run the companies. Uh, and so that is one of the reasons. Uh, certainly, Brian is uh, is a main attraction here. So uh, the company trades in Toronto under the symbol GIS. You can buy it in the U.S. as I have under the symbol GGISF. Seventy four point eight million shares, I believe. Number of shares out, but it's trading for a mere eight cents, giving it a market cap in U.S. money of around uh, six million dollars. Thanks for joining me again, Brian. Jay, thanks very much for having me again. Thank you. Always good to have you. I like to start out maybe asking you, what is the goal of the company? That is, what does the board of directors have you doing? Uh, where do you want to take this company? Where does the board want you to go? What What are the objectives? I mean, you're an exploration company, so I guess probably it's to to find a sizable deposit, but perhaps you can just elaborate a little bit on on that. Sure, I'd certainly be happy to. Uh, we, you know, we are a fairly pragmatic group of people at the board level, and uh, 
even though I've had experience with large companies that produce gold, I certainly don't pretend to be uh, a production line uh, person. So, you know, we all realize that producing gold is, is uh, it, it's, it's hard enough to find gold, but producing gold as an operating mine is always very difficult. So we, we take the pragmatic approach of trying to define a resource that would be attractive to a larger company, uh, potentially either as a, an outright takeout or a joint venture, uh, and utilize the skill sets that larger companies have to sure. advance and develop and potentially produce gold from uh, a deposit. Uh, so our objectives are fairly clear-cut in that regard. Um, and while we, we stay very focused on gold at this stage, uh, that's the only commodity that we're searching for. Uh, and we, we, we have sort of taken a fairly focused approach, too, in terms of geography. We're focusing in the eastern Canadian, the uh, Superior Province, which is the the uh, very well-known uh, Abitibi uh, Greenstone Belt area that straddles the Ontario and Quebec borders. Uh, significant gold production, as most of your listeners would know, in, in excess of 170 million ounces have come out of this area. So one of the truly great mining areas of the world. So we, we by keeping it fairly simple in terms of our focus geographically as well as the uh, production, knowing what our limitations are with production, uh, we're, we're clearly looking for opportunities to advance a project and uh, potentially uh, in such a fashion that it attracts a major uh, player to come along and, and either join with us or um, take the project on completely. So that's uh, that's our objectives. That's the objective. And you're in a part of the world where there are other majors. So you have all the infrastructure uh, that you need there, the people, uh, the regulatory authority there in Quebec, one of the best in the world. Uh, and your your flagship property is the Chevier project. Uh, it's a, I think some 95 square kilometers in the Abitibi Greenstone Belt, as you mentioned. Uh, for the sake of listeners that may not have heard you before, can you tell them a little bit about your current resource and what remains to be done to outline a deposit of sufficient size that might attract a major? But certainly, uh, at the present time, the the project had seen uh, extensive work up until about 2010. Uh, we acquired the property in 2016, and uh, have uh, basically inherited a large amount of historic drill data. So, consequently, uh, moving towards an updated resource involves validating those historic data. So, the most recent resource report for the property uh, goes back to 2010. Uh, it was still compliant under 43. 101, and it, it, it was reported as around about 300,000 ounces at two grams. Mm-hmm. Um, we know for you know we know from researching the historic records for the property that uh, previous groups, larger companies by the the like of Inmet, which was the, uh, mm-hmm. the old Falconbridge Copper Group, um, the reputable mid-tier blue chip um, you know base metal producers, ostensibly but good mining companies, had come up with significantly larger numbers, but they, those numbers predate 43101. So. Uh, we believe that the older work cannot necessarily just be discounted. So our intent was to see if we could improve upon the, um, the the report from 2010. We believe we will be able to do so. So we completed uh, approximately 10,000 meters of drilling in 2017. 
um, those assay data have uh, now, results have been released, and we are working towards an updated resource, which we are scheduling for the third quarter of this year. Uh, so that is uh, that is where we're heading. Uh, it's interesting. Um, the, the Shibugamu area, uh, where the project is located, is uh, is about 300 kilometers to the west of um, uh, the Valdor camp, which some of your uh, listeners may be aware of. One of the uh, preeminent uh, gold-producing areas in Quebec, uh, and because production ceased uh, from some of the mines in the Shibugamu camp around about 20, 25 years ago. Uh, there's no current mill uh, within the immediate area. About 100 kilometers away, there is a mill that's uh, currently producing gold, and it uh, it may present some synergies uh, for us uh, in the future in terms of infrastructure existing, which would uh, obviously minimize capital requirements to build a new mine, freestanding mine. What do you think, uh, in terms of ounces, do you need to start attracting a major? Do you need a couple million ounces, or what do you need? Um, well, or, actually, or let's the, say a mid-tier producer. Even a very interesting question, Jay. Because um, recently, uh, as recently as uh, about a week ago, I am Gold uh, is has optioned into a property called Monster Lake, which sits about 15 kilometers to the south and west of our Chevrier property. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they have been spending quite a bit of money uh, on uh, on their earn-in to get to about a 70 percent interest. Uh, they published the initial resource estimate for that property, and it, it came in at uh, just under 500,000 ounces at around, mm-hmm. I think it was 12 to 13 grams. Mm-hmm. Um, but intriguingly, it's a deeper target, so it, uh, is, it, it is an underground operation. That's how they would model it. Um, so that is, a, that is quite a, a, a bit of a paradigm shift in our thinking, too, because uh, we we traditionally would look at Chevrolet as a standalone. I think the magic threshold that most people would like to see us achieve would be something approaching one million ounces. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be, you know, I, I think fairly fairly wide wide held belief that you need that sort of uh, level of uh, contained ounces to move towards uh, any any advanced uh, feasibility study or something like that. But the the opportunity, or at least potentially, the, there may be synergies in the future. Who knows? That that uh, mm-hmm. most of the ounces that we see at Chevrier are near surface, potentially open pitable. Mm-hmm. Um, so given that uh, IM Gold is developing a, a deeper underground deposit, uh, the potential may exist for, uh, who knows, some, some synergy, operating synergy sure. there. So perhaps our threshold need not be as high as a million ounces. Um, we, mm-hmm. We'll just have to see where we can end up in, uh, you know, in, as I said, in Q3 of this year. Um, but it has made us start to think about, uh, uh, you know, operational uh, synergies between two adjoining relatively close projects. And as I said, it's about 15 kilometers between the two properties, uh, connected by a fairly extensive road system, um, a, a three-lane wide gravel road that's maintained uh, year-round by the uh, province of Quebec. So um, fairly good access between the properties. We don't know if that may end up being a reality, but at least sure. it, uh, it gives us a different, uh, a, a different way of looking at uh, Chevrolet. Well, you may not need a million ounces, but I, I can't help but notice you do have a historical resource in addition to your 43101 compliant resource. You have a historical resource. Uh, I think it's on something called the South Zone, which is one of many different targets that you have on your larger property. But that uh, South Zone had 540,000 ounces of historic uh, historic gold ounces, and I guess you know you can't 
you can't include those in your thinking right now because you have to com- you have to make them compliant. Is there any um, are there any plans to go ahead and, and try to make those compliant anytime soon? Because if you could add 540 to 300,000, you'd be getting you'd be getting up towards a million ounces pretty fast. No, that's a very good point, Jay. Uh, our immediate plan is that, uh, as we know, I mean the capital cost of mining. Uh, what we what we do have, um, just as an aside with the board, is we have a, a very uh, a very good technical group and all of whom have worked for major companies, well, many of whom have worked for major companies and hence have an understanding of what it takes to get a mine across the uh, <laughs> the finish line, shall we say. Sure. Um, so uh, we, what we have done is, is made a conscious effort to focus on the main zone because we know that they are near near surface ounces um, and that would be the, that's the main thrust for our work this year, as I said, to get to that uh, resource update in Q3. The south zone is a deeper target. Um, it hasn't been drilled as extensively as the main zone, so it may require quite a few more holes um, than, uh, than, you know, obviously than is currently in, in, the, uh, in the historic database. Um, so we are scheduling that for potentially early uh, 2019 as, as, uh, as another, proper, another target on the project area. Uh, mm-hmm. We also have multiple near-surface showings that we still have to follow up, so um, the south zone would fall into that category of uh, of uh, obviously clear targets that we need to follow up um, in uh, either later this year or early in 2019. Yeah, I mean, I, I noticed, uh, I was just looking at a map that I had last year of your property and it showed, I think, eight targets and now a more recent one showed 11 targets, if I counted properly. So you're <laughs> obviously, right. uh, your surface work is showing more and more things to shoot at and I guess what you're what you're um, what you're trying to do is to expand the ounces laterally and not go to depth, but you can get uh, open pitable. I mean, my goodness, nearly two grams per ton is pretty rich uh, these days for open pit mines that you've got up there in the on the main zone, right? That's exactly right, and and that's what uh, that's what I think would be um, fairly attractive to a potential acquirer is the overall contained grade within anything that could be open pitable. Um, at the same time, as you made mention of the number of targets, we 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 have a great geological team now working with this uh, younger team, uh, all Quebec-based, and uh, they've taken the time, which was what the project needed. They've taken the time to synthesize everything, integrate the historic data with the new data, and start looking at the regional setting of where gold occurs. And they've, ha- you know, they've had many, many discussions with Quebec uh, government geologists, and I think it's helping us understand the controlling structural corridor <laughs> that exists on the property, and hence the number of targets uh, have increased, as you pointed out as a consequence of our better improved understanding of the uh, regional context of these structures. Do you see a possibility of increasing those 300,000 ounces on your main zone? I know that you are sort of focused now on, uh, uh, on, on two different areas of that main zone, but is that in your plans for this year, your plans to expand the main zone? Uh, what are your plans for the, the exploration in 2018? Uh, for 2018, we uh, we've actually our, our focus is uh, the updated resource for the main zone. So we 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 are confident that we can improve upon the the 300,000 ounces that were uh, that were um, uh, made public in 2010 by previous uh, previous owners of the property. Uh, at the same time, we, our, our geological team have seen some fairly strong synergy or similarities in the setting of the main zone uh, with the geology at uh, a Goldex mine close to Valdor, 
Goldex mm-hmm. is owned by Agnico Eagle, and uh, it may surprise some of your listeners to hear that they are operating underground at a cutoff grade of less than half a gram per ton. Yeah, so that's pretty incredible. Um, it, it's pretty incredible, uh, but it works because they are moving large volumes of material underground. It's uh, bulk underground mining, as they as they call it, and uh, because of the cost efficiencies of moving large amounts of material, they can keep the unit costs down. So we see similarities, uh, even though um, our geological modeling that would lead into the resource estimate for the main zone sees uh, two to three bodies uh, that uh, extend from surface down to about 500 meters depth. We do have a deeper hole under one of those um, uh, wedges of mineralization that is down in excess of 500 meters, and it returned uh, more than one gram over 40 meters. Mm. And that would be the type of material and the thicknesses that we would envisage we would need uh, to to you know to develop a deeper uh, a deeper underground target below the pits, potentially open pitable material, uh, very very much uh, in a similar fashion to what uh, Agnico Eagle has done at the Gold X deposit. So yeah. it's a it's a new understanding of the deposit, which provides for a, a, it'll be a large driver of our exploration work this year. Uh, we think that we have enough drill holes into those mineralized blocks that are near surface, potentially open pitable, that we do not need to do any more drilling in that area. Uh, so the, mm-hmm. the bulk of our drilling will be testing the deeper extensions to see if we can validate um, uh, the Goldex analog at oh. uh, Chevrolet. So. All right. Well, that's really good. Now you... Um Maybe so. We'll be looking for the resource. I guess that's one. That's the driver, and that's in Q3. You say so. We're looking maybe that's six right. months away from now, five yes. six months anyway. Uh, any other drivers? What should people be looking for? And also, are you going to need to raise any money anytime soon? You, I mean, you got a six million dollar market cap. For goodness sakes, and we're talking about a comparison <laughs> with Goldex Mine. Uh, if 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 that kind of thing comes to be, there's no way this is an eight cent stock. Uh, Ten cents no, in I, Canada, I guess. I I agree with you completely. Yeah, it, it, we will have to go to market at some stage uh, before we get into an aggressive underground, uh, not underground, but deeper drilling program. Uh, so yeah, that's that, that's that's uh, that's one aspect of the uh, consideration. But once we are drilling, and we believe that because we are in Quebec, you know, we're um, what's called super flow through eligible. Um, mm-hmm. it, there is a keen interest in in you know amongst Quebec investors for mining projects in their own province. So um, we'll be we'll be looking at opportunities. Opportunities in the near term, in terms of uh, financing opportunities, but the other catalyst will be because of that uh, deep, you know, the deeper drilling program. Um, we will mm-hmm. see assay assay news coming out uh, throughout the summer months as well, leading up to the resource update. So uh, it's not just really just a question of waiting until Q3 for the resource update. Okay, we, uh, we have uh, other news flow coming. Yep. Okay, great, Brian. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I want to thank you for giving us an update. Really interesting, I think, although the market seems to be yawning over this stock right now. Boy, if you can look at the possibilities and if they come to, to be, uh, the upside, I believe, is very enormous. So thanks very much, Brian, for being with us. And, uh, folks, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Alistair McLeod will be joining me after the break to talk about how China is planning to end its dependency on American trade and the U.S. dollars. has some very profound effects possibly on our markets. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Alistair McLeod. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Alistair McLeod. He's been a fairly frequent guest here, I think probably next to Michael Oliver, the most frequent guest probably, and, and well, it's because I just enjoy his insights. I read his material at goldmoney.com, where he publishes once a week very thoughtful and insightful insights about the markets, about what's going on, connecting geopolitics with the markets to a great extent. Uh, and he has quite a background as an analyst, uh, as a stockbroker, and he understands what honest money is, real money, gold. And so uh, that is one of the main reasons that Alistair is uh, invited on this show, and we're so grateful that he agrees to join us so often from what is getting close to his bedtime in England. Thank you for joining me, Alistair. That's very much my pleasure, Jay. Well, it is so so much fun listening to you. Uh, I wouldn't say maybe fun is the wrong word because a lot of the things you have to say are not necessarily fun, but they are realistic, I think, and... Uh, and truthful. And truth is what we seek on this show as much as anything else. We'd like to make some money from understanding the world as it is. Um, China has risen very rapidly from what was known when I was a young person as a sleeping giant back in the day when when Nixon was president and he uh, sort of opened things up with China during that time. Um, But now China is growing very rapidly. Their, Their economy is growing and with their economy uh, they're building up their military to a certain extent. They're building infrastructure that is challenging America, American trade and uh, hegemony, I would say, in, in parts of the world, especially in Asia. I'm wondering if you could comment on China's rise to become such a global power in a relatively short period of time, in a few decades. You know, from the days of Mao Zedong, when it was sort of an internal 
uh, organism that didn't do much or talk to the rest of the world until it is now. How did they? How did China achieve such a rapid climb? Well, basically, um, they follow, if you like, Confucian principles, uh, which basically uh, we would call mercantilist, uh, where the state uh, runs uh, the economy as if it was a business. Mm-hmm. And um, after Mao died, um, around about 1982, round about then, they began to encourage uh, Western businesses to set up manufacturing capabilities on the mainland. And uh, this meant there was a, a lot of inward investment. So at that time, there was a trade deficit because of the inward investment, but that was quite rapidly overtaken by production. Um, and uh, China became, if you like, the source of cheap goods for the world and uh, obviously America. Uh, and um, really growing from there, um, she's now entered a new phase, and that is um, she has lifted a lot of her population from subsistence level farming into, um, you know, sort of lower and middle classes. And the middle classes are growing quite rapidly, and that's what a lot of the development is about. So the economy is now moving from exporting cheap stuff to countries like um, America and Europe and Britain and so on, uh, into um, providing the services and um, higher quality goods and technology for her own citizens. So it's a very big change in emphasis. But when you look at the rate at which the Chinese economy uh, is growing, of course, the measure is GDP. And the GDP is just a money total. So in a sense, uh, when you see that the Chinese economy is growing at 10% uh, year after year or 6% or whatever it is, it's really a function of um, the expansion of bank credit. And Mm -hmm. uh, of course, uh, we all know that that can only go um, so far. But what they're, they're, they're now doing is they're trying to jump down on the speculative um, the consequences of the expansion of bank credit. I mean, for example, uh, traders who try and front run the state when it comes to buying commodities, mm-hmm. um, you find that what happens is that the Chinese government start leaning on the shadow banking system and the shadow banks then have to withdraw from facilities from the speculators. So you find that, uh, hey, presto, we've got copper going down, we've got nickel going down, we've got lead going down, we've got silver going down. So these, um, uh, I, I would hesitate to call silver base metal, but basically that base metal complex uh, is shaking out the Chinese speculators, as it were, and this is this is as a result of um, monetary policy within within China. But that will change because China uh, has really uh, more or less cornered the global market for um, uh, infrastructure materials um, because she is going to be uh, building her electricity grid. She is going to be um, uh, building uh, you know new rail communication all those things which require huge amounts of copper. And on top of that, she's looking to industrialize her own backyard. And we're looking really at at, uh, virtually all Asia. And uh, the consequences for Europe are also very important because with the new Silk Road, trains are now delivering huge quantities of goods in both directions. And at the moment, it takes something like 12 days to get from uh, get a Mercedes car, say from Stuttgart into the showroom in Beijing, um, just twelve days. 
Whereas if it went by sea, you would be looking at 30 days. Mm-hmm. So you can see that that uh, this is a huge change in the way everything um, is done and everything is happening. And, of course, part of this is that China uh, wants effectively to run her own affairs in the global context as much as possible. And this is why uh, she doesn't want to use the dollar. She's seen uh, uh, America use the dollar as a weapon, if you like, against other nations. And she doesn't want to be in the position of weakness where America might do that. So this is really her driving motivation for getting her trade partners uh, to accept yuan. And I would just add one little point here, which is, I think, missed by everybody. And that is that over the last year, the yuan has been a better currency to take payment in in than the dollar. And this is very, very important. And I think it is uh, encouraging, particularly the oil exporters to China, uh, to um, take yuan rather than oil. And this, of course, has implications for the petrodollar and um, the way the world has operated on a dollar reserve basis and with um, uh, the major commodities all priced in dollars ever since uh, the early 1970s. So it's an interesting juncture, I think, um, this point in China's development and how it is affecting the world as a whole. Could you explain, perhaps, uh, Alistair, how the reserve currency that the U.S. has had, uh, which I think was what was orchestrated during Nixon's day, the petrodollar, was the petroleum-backed dollar in a sense, whereas when he took away gold from the international monetary system. Uh, And then Kissinger sets out to work a deal with uh, Saudi Arabia and the oil producers, demanding dollars for payment for payment of oil. And now, as, as you've talked about on this show before, China is the largest importer of oil now, and they're saying, you know, we're not going to give you dollars, we're going to give you yuan. And, um, but how, how does the United States, or how has the United States used its currency to get over on other countries and perhaps take advantage of them? How, how does it work that? How does it do that? Well, the way it works is that, um, as you probably know, um, if I, as someone living in the UK, um, have a dollar balance, uh, I might have the dollar balance through my bank account, but actually the dollar balance is in New York. It's not Mm -hmm. here. Um, And so uh, if I need dollars in order to do um, trade settlements, then I have to buy my dollars in order to do it. Mm -hmm. And that that doesn't take the dollars away from New York. What it does is it expands the the quantity of dollars within uh, the American banking system. So you can see that um, it costs absolutely nothing for the Fed to provide me with dollars, um, but at the same time, it allows the Fed to expand the quantity of dollars in circulation uh, in uh, the U.S. banking system. So um, really what happens is that um, uh, you've got this sort of dichotomy, as it were. On the one hand, I'm in the market having to buy dollars so that I can go and buy oil or whatever it is that I want to buy. Um, And uh, on the other hand, uh, you can run your economy um, as, uh, you know, as badly as you like over there, but I still need the damn dollars. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So this was this was the point, I think, behind uh, the the Triffin dilemma, uh, because what Robert Triffin, who was um, a Belgian American economist, um, uh, sort of 30, 40 years ago, what he um, uh, understood was that uh, 
uh, by being the reserve currency, what the dollar was doing was it was it was able to overvalue its currency because of international demand and at the same time run its uh, economy on a basis that would otherwise undermine the economy. And it's for this reason that you have had the most enormous balance of payments deficits for some considerable time without it affecting the dollar. That's, um, it, 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 it's, it's all slightly counterintuitive, but that is the way in which um, the exorbitant privilege, if you like, of the dollar actually works. Mm-hmm. And, and we, 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 you know, we've got really now we have got um, a very large build-up of dollars in foreign hands. And funnily enough, this isn't um, the subject of an article which will be released later on this week. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really interesting. Uh, we'll look forward to that for sure. But you're saying that the uh, the Chinese currency has outperformed the dollar. So people who sold uh, oil to to China would have been better off taking yuan over the last year than dollars, eh? And that's without exchanging their yuan for gold. That is correct, yes. Um, the yuan is up about 9% uh, over 2017 uh, against the dollar. So that's the extent to which you would have benefited. Um, so now we have this. Uh, can you comment a little bit on the, on the, uh, the Shanghai oil exchange, the futures exchange, it just opened, I believe it was March 26th when it went live. Is that right? And how is it performing? Um, yes, you're right. It went live on uh, March the 26th. And the first week's trading has been very successful. Um, in the first three days, the equivalent of 60 million barrels of oil uh, were traded. Um, and given that China's um, daily intake, if you like, uh, import of oil is around about eight to eight and a half million barrels. You can see that the size of the market um, looks like developing into having sufficient liquidity, really, for China to uh, settle all her um, uh, her oil imports uh, convincingly in her own currency. Um, the, the thing that's interesting about this is that there are some nations who export to China who would also like to avoid the dollar. So they're, they're on the same, side, same page, as it were, as uh, China is uh, when it comes to not wanting to use the dollar. Um, the principal ones, obviously, are Iran and also Russia. Um, Russia is now the largest exporter of oil around the world, um, having overtaken um, uh, Saudi Arabia, just. Uh, Iran uh, sells a lot of oil to China. Uh, and we can see uh, particularly those two nations who we know um, like gold, they use gold as money. Uh, they are likely to, um, if you like, use the futures markets for uh, uh, to hedge some of their yuan exposure into uh, matching gold contracts. Now, there are yuan gold contracts traded in both Hong Kong and also Dubai. Mm -hmm. now, interestingly, um, the Chinese authorities appear to have given uh, the blessing to um, uh, an arrangement between Dubai and Hong Kong, and they've also brought in other centers like Singapore. They're talking, believe it or not, to Myanmar, you know, the old Burma, mm -hmm. uh, and also possibly Cambodia. What mm. they're looking to do is to set up um, what's been described as a gold corridor. Mm -hmm. uh, what these centers, particularly Dubai and Hong Kong, see is increased demand for deliverable gold futures 
Now, they're tagging it as being uh, the result of um, the uh, Silk Road project and the amount of business that's likely to come uh, into the futures market as a, as a byproduct of that. But actually what they're doing is they're looking to gear up within two or three months to have storage facilities, which they've already contracted for, on the Chinese mainland so that there is a depot, if you like, for um, uh, physical gold to be deposited and delivered with these contracts. So I think the very fact that two rival exchanges are getting together basically tells me, and I think it tells the world, that um, they see uh, as a result of the development on the energy contracts in Shanghai, there is likely to be a greater demand for gold. They need to get together in order to be able to satisfy it. So it is a, it, it, this is, um, this is a, a double blow, if you like, as far as the Americans are concerned. On the one hand, um, the petrodollar is no longer being exclusively used, uh, and there's not a lot America can do about it. Uh, and on the other hand, um, it would appear that some of the users of this contract are likely to hedge into gold and could end up driving the gold price up which as far as the American um, uh, Treasury are concerned and the Fed are concerned, is a development they would not want to see. Yeah, I would, I would imagine so. I mean, this is a direct competition against the dollar hegemony, and, and uh, to a certain extent, uh, if, the, if a good part of the world isn't using dollars anymore, that privilege uh, ceases to exist to the same extent it did before anyway. And you're saying there's not much that can be done about it, and yet... I'm hearing growing rhetoric here in the United States all the time about how China is a bigger and bigger threat to us and how, uh, you know, we need to flex our military muscles in order to try to resolve this threat. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, certainly you've, you, over there on your side of the pond, the Brits are pretty much with us on this, or at least uh, the public officials seem to be. What are your thoughts about that? And in fact, I'd like to ask you about another article you recently wrote the end of democracy, and you're suggesting that these, if I got you right, that these growing geopolitical tensions are probably going to impact us negatively in terms of the uh, democracy that we in the West have enjoyed for so many years. Well, I'll come to democracy in a moment. Um, uh, that is, if you like, a, <laughs> I'm afraid, a, a continuing um, miserable story. But yeah. uh, getting, getting, getting back to your basic point about uh, the increase in tensions between uh, America and China, mm -hmm. yes, that is certainly the case. And I think the reason that the Chinese have taken so long to introduce this contract is they have been um, concerned about the effects on, uh, on on the dollar that might follow. Because remember, they are very large holders of uh, US treasuries, apart from anything else. Uh, and uh, the other thing is that um, the trade relationship with uh, with America is a very, very delicate thing. I think when uh, President Trump got elected, it did rather change things as far as China was concerned, because they see him, I think, as a bit of a bull in the China shop rather than a subtle operator. Mm -hmm. And uh, consequently, um, uh, I, I think that... Um, the Chinese got themselves into a position whereby they really had to go ahead with this contract because um, the very fact that they were insisting as much as possible that their, their oil suppliers take you on meant that they had to provide the, um, uh, if you like, the financial depth uh, 
uh, for um, people like like Russia uh, to really seriously consider this and use it going forward. Um, so they lost, I think, a little bit of the timing. Uh, in terms of control over the timing as to when mm -hmm. this contract was going to go out. It had to go out. Um, the problem, I think, as far as America is concerned, is America did not want to see this contract because of the petrodollar issue. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that it has gone ahead, uh, I think, has increased trade tensions. And I don't think it's an accident that uh, President Trump started off um, immediately after the, the start of this contract was announced before it actually started trading um, with tariffs on steel and aluminium. Mm -hmm. uh, and that has obviously continued and gone into other products as well. China has hit back with um, uh, um, tariffs the other way. And so you've got this sort of tit for tat thing going. This, I think, was inevitable. But I think that the thing that has set the timing of it has actually been the introduction of this contract because of that petrodollar angle. All right. Uh, Alistair, unfortunately, we're going to have to let it go there. I hear a discussion in the future about trade wars with you. Uh, and, and as far as uh, the demise of democracy goes, I would just suggest that people go to goldmoney.com, goldmoney.com, and read that article and also sign up and, and get on the uh, mailing list uh, to receive Alistair's, um, uh, Alistair's weekly missives or go to gold, gold Money. Dot com to uh, to read what he has to say because they are very insightful, very helpful, and very practical in terms of how we view our investments, I think, going forward. Thank you so much again, Alistair, for being with us, and uh, always a pleasure. I hope we can have you back again sometime soon. Folks, that is all the time we have this week. Uh, next week, Congressman, former Congressman Ron Paul, presidential candidate, will be with us to talk about, I think, some of the same topics that we just talked to Alistair about. I'm sure you're not going to want to miss next week with Dr. Ron Paul. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Bonterra Resources, an advanced exploration company, is aggressively expanding its high-grade Gladiator gold deposit in Quebec, Canada. Over the last 12 months, Bonterra has raised over $60 million and has attracted strategic investors Eric Sprott, Kirkland Lake Gold, and New York-based Vanek Gold Fund. Bonterra is focused on updating its 43-101 resource in the second half of 2018 and will incorporate up to an additional 100,000 meters of drilling, where the dimensions of the Gladiator deposit have been expanded to date nearly 500%. Bonterra trades in Canada under the symbol BTR and in the U.S. under the symbol BONXF. Oren Resources is a technically driven, capital-efficient exploration company focused on delivering shareholder value through accretive project acquisition and discovery. The company's management team has a record of success in the discovery, advancement, and monetization of exploration assets. Oren's focus is on advancing its seven premier gold exploration projects located in Canada and Peru. Oren's shares trade on the TSX in Canada and the NYSE American in the U.S. under the stock symbol AUG. For more information, please visit orenresources.com.